Nobody uh, wakes up one day and says, I'm going to go into the DNS business. I see us today as a software business more so than as a DNS business. My job became, whether I realize it or not, hire great people and let them run. What the seed investors or the Series A investors really need to know is this is a team that's got some grit. They're going to grind it out. I cannot overemphasize the strategic value of simply being able to trust a leader like Brian with such a huge chunk of the business. We're in a hard space that is deeply technical and you have to go where the talent is, which means everywhere in the world. One of the most useful elements of our business in reacting to this pandemic is the fact that we are an operational business in the critical path for our customers and we're practiced in handling duress. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm really excited to have Chris Beavers with me here today on Founder Real Talk. And Chris is coming live from the boat social distance, his new COVID boat which is awesome. Chris is the founder and CEO of NS1, which is the leader in modern application and access networking. And Chris is a recognized authority on global application delivery and DNS. He holds a PhD in computer science from RPI. And uh, prior to founding NS1, he built CDN, cloud, bare metal, and other infrastructure at Voxel, which sold to Internap in 2011. And we're going to find out that Voxel was really important the early part of Chris's career. Chris has grown NS1 from founding in 2013 up to a sizable company today, just under 200 employees, uh, over 600 enterprise customers. So the company has really scaled nicely. Uh, and the company's also raised over $120 million across several rounds, including the most recent of $40 million Series D raised earlier in 2020. GGV was lucky enough to lead Chris's Series B1 round in mid-2017, and I've been on S1's board ever since. So I've really gotten to know Chris and the team at NS1 well, and I'm really excited to have him here today. Chris, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks for having me, Glenn. I'm super excited. Awesome. And I think you're the first guest we've ever had in a boat. I was hoping. I was hoping that was going to be the case. So. Yeah. We're breaking new ground or <laughs> new water. I wanted to start by asking you to start the story even before NS1's founding. You were at Voxel, which was a company that birthed a lot of successful startups. And I'm curious, like, why do you think uh, Voxel turned out to be such a hotbed for founders and new company formation? Just starting with a little bit of context for everybody, right? Almost no one's ever heard of Voxel, right? It's not a super well-known business. At its peak, Voxel was like 60 people. It was a tiny little company based here in New York. The CEO and the founder was a, a gentleman named Raj Dutt. It was not really a venture-backed business until very, very late in the cycle. I ran engineering there in you know the latter years. And you know, the way I usually describe Voxel is it was kind of a you know, vertically integrated application infrastructure company, right? So it started as managed hosting in the late 90s through early public cloud and on-demand bare metal and content delivery and DNS services. So that full vertical stack of again, everything you need to build and deliver an application on the internet through the 2000s. And I think that time frame and then the breadth of focus and the scale are kind of the magic elements, right? Um, if you... If you think about what was happening in applications and the internet through the 2000s, right? We saw the emergence of public cloud, the emergence of DevOps, the emergence of API addressable infrastructure, IaaS, all of that stuff, right? And 
I usually bucket it up to we saw these trends toward more dynamic and distributed application environments, right? Footprints unlocked by those trends. And we were right in the middle of all of it because we were building that full stack infrastructure. And I think the other reality of Voxel was um, because we were so small, we were super scrappy. And, you know, as a business, it's hard to say if Voxel was a great business or not, right? Because we did a lot of things. We scratched the surface of public cloud and on-demand bare metal and content delivery, DNS services, managed hosting, co-location, transit, all of it. And to meet kind of the minimum expectations to play in those markets, we had to build, you know, fairly complete tech, but we had to do it super, super scrappily because our engineering team was like 40 or 50 people. I think the only other context for everybody is some of the businesses that came out of there, right? Like all of them much bigger than Voxel ever was. NS1, obviously we're going to talk about, but folks may know Packet, Bare Metal On Demand that exited to Equinix this year, Kentic, Network Analytics Startup in the growth stage, Grafana Labs, which just announced a $50 million Series B round, uh, which Voxel's founder Raj leads. So some really interesting businesses came out of there. And I think it's because of that context, the time frame, the pace of change and how close we were to the action. Yeah. I mean, it must have been an incredible group of people to work with. And also, like you say, a really interesting time, you know, emergence of cloud and kind of all the technologies that came with it. And you guys had to build like a fully a full stack solution and do so with a lot of scrap, which really set, I think, set you up for NS1, next part of the journey. I'm curious how you had the idea for NS1. What was like the opportunity you saw and has that vision evolved over time? Or is this one where like things have kind of been pretty consistent all the way through? Nobody uh, wakes up one day and says, I'm going to go into the DNS business, right? So of course it's connected to Voxel somehow. So, you know, just to go a little deeper on what we've already touched on, you know, through that time frame in the 2000s, we saw all of this evolution and how applications were being built and delivered. And one of the things I mentioned that we we built at Voxel as a content delivery network. Now, CDN, you know, for folks who don't know that space very well, the, the easiest way to think about a CDN is it's just piles of infrastructure all over the world. And the most interesting to me challenge in CDN was always, I've got a user on the internet somewhere. They want to get a cap picture from my CDN. Which pile of infrastructure am I going to send it to to get that cap picture fastest, right? So that they're happy as quickly as possible. And we would now call that the traffic steering problem. So we solved that problem for our own narrow, you know, particular use case CDN in that last business. And we learned a lot about how to do it and uh, what works and doesn't and the kinds of data you might want to act on and what a smart decision looks like and how to operate that stuff at scale. And then we connected that work that we were doing with what was happening in our customers' applications, right? And we, we talked about some of the trends we got to see really closely in Voxel. You know, usually bucketed all up to we saw application footprints becoming more dynamic because of APIs and DevOps tools and the like, and more distributed because of well, really two big drivers, right? Microservice architectures and this idea of like, let's decouple all these different components of our system into services that interact in a distributed fashion for engineering velocity, and also more distributed in the global sense. Um, I used to live in Singapore and when I first got there in 2008 or so, you know, Google and Facebook were fast. The rest of the internet was horrible, right? Because um, it all lived in Ashburn, Virginia. And somewhere in there, we all recognized that uh, users in Singapore and Europe and South America and Africa and all these other places around the world matter too. 
you can't beat the speed of light or the laws of physics. You have to put the code and the data closer. And so we saw applications becoming more globally distributed too. And when you connect all these dots, it's really very simple. You know, we were building tech for steering traffic across dynamic and distributed global infrastructure of our own because we got to be close to the action, right? As we talked about in Voxel for our customers' applications, I think we saw their own applications becoming a lot more like our CDN. And we said, well, wait a minute. You know, has this problem we've been solving over here in CDN land become more relevant for everybody's applications? And that was sort of the the one, two of the opportunity. And I think just the final leg of the stool is the market, right? And the first market we uh, really zeroed in on was managed DNS is what we call it, right? And the way to think about this is um, this is the market of SaaS providers for domain name services for application companies. So when you're typing in, uh, let's use LinkedIn as our example, right? You type in linkedin.com to your browser and press enter. That domain name has to get turned into an IP address that you're actually going to connect to. And that's how you get connected to LinkedIn's servers or content delivery or application infrastructure behind the scenes. There is a market for that. It's been around for a while, right? And uh, the managed DNS market, what it looked like in 2011 or 2012, as we were thinking about this problem was, it was providers who built big global network footprints. They ran software on those footprints to convert LinkedIn.com or other domains into the IP address that you connect to. And all of the differentiation in that space was on how fast does that happen? How reliable? Is that network footprint? How resilient is it to security events or attack? And pretty much everybody in the space was running, you know, some derivative of the same software. And, uh, you know, I think in our estimate, that evolution, that the more dynamic and distributed applications that we were seeing in our previous business meant that there was now a software problem to be solved in this space and that the incumbents weren't really positioned to solve that problem. Now, one other thing you asked is like, has that vision stuck? Has it evolved over time? And, um, you know, actually, it's really stuck. I see us today as a software business more so than as a DNS business. To me, DNS is a lever that we pull with software. And what we're always looking for are other levers we can pull that are like this, right? Like we're really good at building software that brings intelligence to points of leverage in the application delivery stack. And a good example of this is... um. You know, we've stepped over the last couple of years into a new space that what's well, known as the DDI space, DNS, DCP, and IP address management. And you can think of this as the you know, the historical behind the firewall or on-premise equivalent of the managed DNS space we first entered. And it's the exact same story, right? Um, everything started changing a few years back in inside the enterprise network, right? We started to introduce virtualization, containerization, network automation, hybrid cloud, Kubernetes, DevOps tools, microservices, right? And that drove the need for more elastic, automation-friendly foundational network technology behind the firewall. And, uh, you know, the players in this space historically had been hardware players, right? They built hardware, they differentiated on the hardware and management tools, professional services, and they all ran more or less roughly the same software. And this was becoming a software space as well. So it was the exact same story played out again in a related space. And obviously we, you know, we play in some other areas as well, but that theme recurs, right? Like where is this lever that exists already is underutilized because things have changed in how applications are being built and delivered. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about building the company. You have this idea, you see this opportunity, you have to select some co-founders to, to go do this with, and 
you know, you've got uh, Sully, John Sullivan as one of your co-founders and you guys brought Alex Vale in as well as a co-founder. How did you decide that they were your co-founders for this new project? And then how did you guys decide, you know, split up tasks and, you know, your role as CEO, curious how you've seen that evolve as you've grown from, you know, scrappy couple person company up to now almost 200. Yeah. So, you know, I've started other companies in the past and um, learned some lessons along the way about co-founders, right? So one lesson I learned in the past, you know, starting a company in a very, very different space was um, don't necessarily go start a business from scratch, you know, with your absolute best friends in the world. And that isn't what Sully and Alex are, right? Like they're not my best buddies. We had a good working relationship. So both Sully and Alex had roles for a long time at Voxel with me. So we had had that history together of working together in a professional situation with different roles, responsibility with respect to each other, and it had built trust in our ability to work together, which is very different than being being best buddies, right? You know, for me personally, that was really important. We had developed that sense of respect for each other's work, work ethic, an understanding of our styles, right? And in general, build up that trust over years at Voxel. We had 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 at Voxel varying roles with respect to each other. I, when I first came into Voxel, I was leading engineering on a project, eventually led engineering in the business. Sully led customer support, led technical operations. His role evolved over time. Alex led marketing at Voxel at one point, eventually GM. Asia Pacific for us. And so I'd also seen them evolving and knew that they could step into different roles, you know, with the needs of the business. And we knew, of course, starting a new company that that was going to happen. Let's come back to that in just a second, right? I think, in fact, like at NS1, or from the very beginning, our roles were pretty ill-defined, right? Like I was building tech, but we had to sell the tech. We had to support the tech. We had to find customers. We had to find infrastructure, all of this stuff we had to figure out from scratch. And so, you know, in the very beginning, we all have these really broadly defined roles that, of course, have evolved like crazy over time. And just to illuminate for everybody a sense of that, right? Um, the best way I could describe Sully's role, for example, at the start of our business was probably some mishmash of like technical operations, sales engineering, and customer support, you know, Obviously, there's not a lot of customer support until you have customers. So he was a sales engineer to start, but very quickly that morphs into, okay, well, I sold you this thing. Let me support you with respect to it. And, you know, helping me manage and operate the technology footprint. But over, we're about seven years into the business or thereabouts today. Over that time frame, his roles evolved pretty dramatically, right? So somewhere in year two or three, we realized, well, wait a minute, we we need to manage our product. We need product management as a discipline in our business. And so that became Sully, right? He was really close to what customers were doing with our technology, mm -hmm. really understood what the technology was. He sort of sat at that boundary. And so, you know, he became, you know, our first product manager. At the time, I think the title was C CPO, you know, and then, you know, over time, what we found we needed was something even broader than that, right? Someone running our engineering and product organizations, bringing those things together, guiding technical vision in the business, engaging with the market at a high level, building the team. And so he expanded in that role and took on CTO as a title and responsibility, which actually is his title today, but his role has, has evolved further, right? Like now we're actually hiring a CPO in our business and, and Sully is a, what I would call a true CTO, 
right? Like really drives the strategy of our technology, our platform, you know, is exploring new markets, is engaging with our customers and with the market as a whole. So, you know, that gives you, that's one end-to-end view. Now I'll give another one, right? Like Alex. Alex was the person at the very beginning of the business that solved all the other problems that Sully and I weren't solving around our technology, right? I was I was building tech from the very beginning. I'm an engineer, a software developer. Sully was figuring out how to operate that stuff and bring it to customers and engage with customers and all other business problems Alex addressed, right? And over time, you know, what, what happens to that founder in a business, right, is you start to go hire specialists. So Alex specialized as well, right? Like he took on marketing first, and then more narrowly scoped himself to demand gen. And somewhere like a few years ago, we found ourselves in a spot where it was time to go bring in, you know, an experienced scale up demand gen leader. But where we were missing some capability again was back on kind of general management and operation of the business. And we found was it was a great opportunity for Alex to become what he is now, which is our chief of staff in our business, which is an incredible role. And I, you know, I think a, a role that we're seeing more and more in startups these days from, you know, series A and beyond. And what made Alex an incredible pick for that role was the founder title. Like he can reach anywhere in the business and have any conversation in the business because of the context he has, the weight he carries as a founder in the business, and the working relationship, right, between he and I. So, you know, that's been a really interesting evolution. And then, you know, myself, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that I've been an engineer pretty much forever, right? And I still think of myself in a lot of ways as an engineer, but I haven't had commit access to our GitHub repository for four or five years, right? And if, if I had that back, I'd mess everything up, right? I am I am the right engineer for the seed stage in a business, right? I'm scrappy and creative and that kind of thing. But my number one job was was put myself out of that job. And, you know, very quickly after building a bunch of early and scrappy tech, my job became... <laughs> like engage with the market, figure out how to apply this technology to the problems in the market. Are we for, you know, developers in a bottoms up motion? Are we for, for major enterprise use cases? And what are those requirements? And how are we going to mature the technology thereafter? But very quickly after that, and it took me some time personally to figure this out, my job became, whether I realize it or not, hire great people and let them run. That's still how I think of my job today is really like hire in chief um, and, uh, you know, letter goer of in chief, if you will. Right. Like what can I go find somebody who's way better than me and way better than anybody else in our business to go do? And how do I attract them to NS1 mm-hmm. and I let them run? That's great. I want to switch gears a little bit to fundraising. Your first round, Series A, you raised uh, from David Aronoff at Flybridge, who actually introduced us a while back. And Paul Flanagan, when he was at Sigma Prime, you know, I'm curious what the process was like to raise a Series A and kind of as you look back at it now, you know, like anything you wish you'd, you'd done differently if you could hit the do over button. Yeah, you know, we're all a lot wiser in hindsight, right? So our Series A was tough and we had to be really kind of scrappy through the process. We talked to, I kept track of it, right? I'm a spreadsheet person, right? So something like 75 firms before David and Paul wrote us a term sheet, or wrote us term sheets, respectively, right? And, um, you know, I think a lot of the objection for us, and this flows into learnings as well, were the fact that, hey, isn't this DNS thing a solved problem? Like, this technology has been around since 1983. Like, what new could possibly be going on in this space that 
you know, makes this a venture worthy business, if you will. And, you know, for me personally, in that first process, one of the big takeaways, it was really, really hard to articulate the vision of the business, the opportunity, why it was a different kind of opportunity, because I was an engineer, right? And I was so excited about the technology and the technology problems, but how do these problems solve problems for our customers, right? Like what is the value that we can bring to the market? Why is it something more than just, you know, another DNS business, another commodity play? The other thing I think uh, that we learned is every single pitch we gave, you know, 75 of them or so is a data point in and of itself, right? It's not just like, ah, I got to keep grinding this out and telling this story until somebody bites. You know, the very first pitch we gave fed fed the, the iteration on the process that we were running and how we were telling our story. Um, and the story we were telling by pitch number 75 was much more mature and, you know, much more aligned with what an mm. investor needs to understand about a business than the first pitch. And, I, you know, to this day, right, as you know, like we just did another exciting, substantial fundraise in the middle of this pandemic. But even in that process, right, like the first conversation and the last one were a little bit different from each other, right? We're mm. always learning these in- engagements and conversations. And, you know, I think that's one of the the big takeaways. And the only other thing, you know, especially at that early stage that in retrospect, I understand, but, you know, I certainly didn't at the time. And some of this is through Paul and David illuminating it for me, you know, four or five years later is, uh, you know, at that stage, I think most investors probably care as much or more about the team than they do about the precise details of the particular business. Right. And, you know, I've talked to both Paul and David about this later on and, and learned, right. Like both of them, made up their mind on the first call that they wanted to make the investment, right? Like we got to invest in this team, right? And the rest of the process, which was plenty laborious after that was, what are all the reasons for us not to? And do those overcome our instinct that this is a team that's going to figure it out? And we're in a hard space. We're in a tough market. Those are all good reasons not to invest in a business. But, you know, I think in those early stages, what what the seed investors or the Series A investors really need to know is this is a team that's got some grit. They're going to grind it out. They are in a space that has potential, right? Maybe it's not all the way there, but a great team can move the space too, yep. right? So, you know, I think that's something that I wish I knew going into the process that, you know, I've learned since. All right. That's a great lesson. So, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, once we invested, you and I sat down at some point. And, you know, one of the first things that I feel like I, I was able to help with was uh, executing on a COO search, which ultimately led to the hiring of, of Brian Zeman. I'm curious, like, you know, as a CEO, why you would dis- decide to hire a COO? That's definitely a question a lot of uh, founders get at some point from their boards or, or from others around the table. And what have you seen as the benefits of bringing on a COO Obviously, Brian, you know, Brian's done well, at least from my perspective and, and I think from yours. But, you know, if you can genericize it a little bit, where does that COO value come in? Yeah, you know, one of the macro lessons I think I've learned in our business over the years is so first, there's a huge amount of value right in bringing your team with you, developing leaders, you know, in the course of the business, the context, the learning opportunity. That, that's super important, right? Sometimes there's also a huge amount of value in bringing in experienced talent who's been there and done that to complement the team that's that's been with you along the way right and brian is brian is a great example of that for us so you know at the time that 
you know, we made the decision and you helped us go and find Brian and, and bring him into the company. We were in the middle of a whole pile of challenges in our business, right? We were kind of getting to that new level of scale where things just really get harder. You know, the team isn't learning from each other through osmosis anymore, right? You're having an institute process. You're really having to operate the business. We were needing to mature our go-to-market motion and strategy. We were entering new markets. We were looking for leverage, right? And we we really needed to bring some scale experience into the team, right? Uh, one of the things that... uh that we're lucky to have, as you know, at NS1 is this this great board that provides that kind of perspective and guidance and highlights, hey, here are some of the challenges that are coming, right? Even if I don't always see them. And so, you know, I think with that input, we decided to go do a COO search. And, it, you know, we we're circling around solving all these problems in our own iterative ways. But that that real experience that Brian brings, and he's a super solid experienced operator, as you know, you know, I think what's happened is we've just gotten to like really put the pedal to the metal and accelerate through some of those challenges by calling on his experience, right? And, you know, Brian's now, he's been NS1 for probably about two years or so. And as you know, he's pretty fundamentally changed our business from one that reacted to what we saw happening to one where we're more actively operating the business on a day-to-day basis. I've also learned a lot from him, right? So in particular, I think Brian has been the architect of our go-to-market strategy. He's matured the entire go-to-market process. He's brought us into the channel. He's built an incredible team. And, you know, I think as a CEO and a founder, like what I've learned (laughs) is I I cannot overemphasize the strategic value of simply being able to trust a leader like Brian was such a huge chunk of the business, right? There's so much that comes off your shoulders when you can say, I trust that Brian's got that, right? Like he's going to figure it out. Or if he can, he's going to tell me and we're going to work on it together. And it's meant that I've been able to focus on product and market strategy or on big strategic alignments or financing strategy. But you know, something that might surprise people is it's not like, it's not like I'm like, all right, Brian, you have our go-to-market strategy or, you know, you have operations in the business. Good luck, have fun. And I'll talk to you you know, in a month, he's a huge thought partner for me. And, 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 um, you know, he's the last call I make every single day. Uh, we definitely encroach on every, each other's dinner times pretty frequently, right? Probably talk for about 45 minutes or an hour a day. And because we're so in sync, the business is aligned, right? What I am operating, what he is operating, everything that is happening in the company is, is driven from a position of alignment because we put the work in with each other as well. That's awesome. So you alluded earlier to the fact that, you know, you've are building product for a newer market, the DDI market, which you mentioned, you know, similar and related to your initial, the initial markets you guys were going after. And it sounds like from your view, very kind of similar market dynamic as well, uh, where you can apply software to a, a new problem, an existing problem, but with a new slant, given changes in computing that gives you the opportunity to apply software and do something better. But bringing a you know a new product in an in a existing company to market is not easy. I'm curious, you know, how you do that. Like, how you've managed to build a product and build up a go to market at the same time you're trying to keep momentum on an, your existing product and market. But it but now you've got this you know newer, going to be smaller by definition project that you know is super important and over time could really grow. But you know, can get lost in the weeds if you're not careful. How do you manage that balance? You know, I'm going to give a, an unsatisfying answer to this at first, which is, I don't know, this is super <laughs> hard, right? Like <laughs> and, and Something Brian and I actually talk about pretty frequently is, 
sort of this idea that what we're doing here ultimately is building a new seed stage or series A business in the context of a series D business that's mature and must continue to grow and act as a series D business and add another dimension to it, right? You know, one of the one of the reasons we stepped into the DDI space is we have technology leverage into that space, right? Like the technology that we built for our mature business can be applied to this this other space. And there's a lot of leverage in, in doing so. And um, that turns out to create an interesting impotence mismatch because the way you act as a Series D business, right, entering a new space, you know, being scrappy, reacting really quickly to what you're finding in your pipeline and meeting the needs of customers and so on. It's a little bit different than the way you act when you're the market leader with a mature business in the critical path for half the internet, which is our our more mature business, right? And that has been what I would call kind of the biggest challenge for us of entering a new space. And, you know, the only answer I really have is to recognize the challenge and operate toward it, right? And, you know, that means that we're doing a huge amount of work to manage this impotence mismatch, to keep focus and priority both on the mature business that needs to continue to innovate and be invested in and scale at the pace of a, you know, growth stage venture business, while also making the right kind of forward progress at the right speed and the right kind of scrappy way in your new business and not letting it all disintegrate. And that's just a lot of work. There's no way around it, right? So there's no, I don't think there's an easy answer to this one. I think it really is recognizing that this is a challenge you know, I, and I don't know if the third or the fourth new line of business is going to be easier. Who knows, right? But, uh, you know, I also recognize like this is what we must get through to become a really great business with a portfolio of products and capabilities as opposed to, you know, just a, a one, one hit wonder. And you guys have done an amazing job, obviously, you know, tongue in cheek, you're in a boat right now, but every, you know, every company is having to adapt to the pandemic. Obviously, we all hope we'll be in a post-pandemic world at some point and life can go back to some sense of normalcy. But while you guys are managing this way in a distributed fashion, uh, remote work, et cetera, I'm curious, you know, headquarters is New York, but you are, you had offices and you have lots of employees in San Francisco, you've got folks in Singapore. So you've already, you've been global, you've been fairly distributed. Mm-hmm. Now you're fully remote. How have you guys managed through that? It appears like obviously the business has continued to do really well. I'm glad to say as an investor, you know, it doesn't appear from the outside, you guys have missed a beat, but curious, like what challenges the going, you know, sort of forced remote work style has, uh, has imposed on you and how you guys have been able to continue to operate so smoothly. You know, I, I think Maybe not surprisingly, right? The fact that we have been a remote business from very early, you know, almost out of necessity, we're in a hard space that is deeply technical and you have to go where the talent is, which means everywhere in the world, right? We have, especially in our engineering team, incredibly talented people in all kinds of spots all over the the globe. You have to invest in being able to to support those individuals to do their best work, to engage, align, communicate, understand what the priority is in the business. So we had invested in that already. And what we found was like, you know, for us, the, the pandemic curve has been March 13th. Let's just try out a work from home day and see how that goes. Right? <laughs> you know, we'll stress test it a little bit. That was a Friday. That Sunday, we we sent an email to everybody and we said, don't come back. Right. And we haven't been back since. It was a quick kind of adoption curve to move remote, but hasn't been without, you know, the need to manage, right? We've had to react pretty quickly to 
hey, people aren't getting breaks. Hey, context is getting misaligned. Hey, we are struggling to bring new people into our business and give them the cultural context, right? That we naturally would be able to with a plane and some in-person time, right? So we've had to recognize and react to those things quickly. And that, that maybe is the other point I would make. You know, one of the most useful elements of our business in reacting to this pandemic is the fact that we are an operational business in the critical path for our customers and we're practiced in handling duress, right? Like we're always under attack or we're always seeing kind of operational incidents or fiber cuts or data center outages or something like that. And we've really had to practice what do we do when something bad is happening? And, you know, I don't think the the lessons are particularly surprising, right? It's communicate hyperactively with each other, right? So we took up our all hands cadence. We took up our communication cadence. We talk with each other all the time about what's going on or what's important. It's be decisive, right? Like lean into it. This is happening. It's not going to change. Let's make some decisions as opposed to sitting here and wondering, like, what does this mean for us? And then let's figure out, well, like, what are the opportunities in this situation, right? Like how does our business map to this global pandemic? What does it mean for our customers? What does it mean for the markets that we're in? Let's experiment a little bit and learn. And so, you know, not kind of sitting back and letting it happen to you, I think um, has been an important part of our response. Got it. Makes sense. So we're at that time of the episode, Chris, where it's time to talk about, uh, we're putting you on the hot seat. So not sure if you have a hot seat on that boat, but we're making one. And uh, so I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. What's a, your favorite book or piece of content that you recommend to other founders? Yeah, I have a, you know, somewhere back in our office, if we ever get back there, I have this box that's full of copies of the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawand, who, you know, he's a, a surgeon by trade, right? And, you know, the book, you know, I found wonderful, insightful, deeply applicable across all elements of our business. I gave a talk on it a few years back at a O'Reilly's um, Velocity Conference. And, and, you know, it's really just talking about the power of checklists, right, uh, to drive process, to drive alignment. And, you know, it's a, a book we draw on in our incident response, for example, right? Like one of the ways we're really good at uh, responding to attacks or outages or those kinds of unexpected things that happen is we think about in advance and we prepare and we have simple little tools for communicating. So that's a wonderful book that I would recommend to anybody. Great. Love that. What's a piece of advice that you'd give yourself when you were starting NS1, knowing what you know now? Yeah, it's a really simple one for me, and it's let go sooner, right? Like, um, you know, I hearken back often to um, the first real realization around this for me in our business was um, we hired a technical operations team, and we gave them pager duty, and we said, you're in charge of our platform now. But for a long time, I didn't take myself off of pager duty, right? And so guess what happened, right? Like I was practiced at it. I would always react faster. I'd be really frustrated with this team. Why aren't you getting to this as fast as I would? Like, why aren't you fixing this the way that I would? And until I went on a vacation, right? And turned it off for a week, which is the most nerve wracking thing that I've done in our business, <laughs> go on the first vacation, right? You know, I didn't realize how important it was for me just to stop doing the thing and let that team run. And, you know, now obviously I see that as my job, right? Like, like, hire myself out of and enable people to, to take over elements of my job and, and let them run. Right. But, uh, you know, early in the business that felt really hard. It felt like everything was going to disintegrate if I detached and let go. So that, that's probably the number one thing. That is really prophetic. And we see that time and again with early stage 
founders really want to put everything on their own shoulders and ultimately, you know, they become bottlenecks and despite their best intentions, slow the business down. So good to hear you've, you'd give yourself that advice. Here's the last one. If you didn't start NS1, what company were you going to start? Yeah, this is a really good one. And so there's not a secret, but, uh, you know, Alex Vale, my co-founder and I lived in Singapore together before we started NS1. In fact, we were in Singapore when, when we had the idea to, to start NS1 and, and we're both New Yorkers, right? So we love pizza and, you know, the food in Singapore is absolutely amazing, but you can't get a New York slice. You know, you just can't, right? Like it's not the same <laughs> thing. And, um, so, you know, we were really passionate about this. We really wanted uh, pizza. We, with another friend there, we got as far as test kitchens, test tastings, all this stuff. And I think that the basic realization was we have no idea how to make pizza. And, uh, you know, the the funny thing that like brings this one full circle is maybe three, four years into NS1, we're just talking about this somewhere. And our, our other co-founder, John, our CTO, heard us telling this story. It turns out he paid his way through college making pizza. So he was the missing ingredient for our pizza business, but I'm glad we didn't know that at the time. I'm glad we ended up where we are because probably not the right, not the right move. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm glad you guys started NS1 and I'm very happy to be an investor in the company. And when the pandemic clears, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I like to make pizzas in our little pizza oven at home. And so all you guys are welcome to come and uh, show me what could have been. <laughs> but uh, I think the NS1 story is going to be even more delicious uh, going forward. I think it'll be more delicious. You know, there's a big pizza tent still in Singapore, I'm sure of it, but maybe not for me. <laughs> Great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on Founder Real Talk. So much wisdom that you've imparted. It's been really fun working with you. And I think everybody listening now understands why. Best of luck in the future. And let's hope we all get through this pandemic safe and sane. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social, and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.